If you're a parent, you can understand this a little bit better. If you're used to looking at your child and they have a little bit of a tantrum, you know the ones that you can quickly adjust. You can just step in very quickly and easily. And you also know the full meltdown ones. And they can have the same cause. It can be exactly the same event. It has a lot to do with where that child is mentally at that moment. And the market is the same way. It is an amalgam of a lot of adult children that are making trades. Um, and anybody that thinks you're not an adult child, well, I don't know how you couldn't be. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else close up the wall with our English dead. This is Jake yeah, McClure. On the line with me, I have... Jeff McClure. And we're both still here, I think. No, you're there. I've been here the whole time, so I don't know how you can no, say you're, I'm you're there. there. You're absolutely there. You're in Colorado. I'm in Texas. Texas is here. Yes. So we are doing a, uh, a digital experiment this week again. I've been to Oregon and done program from Oregon and you, while you've been in Texas. And I'm just trying to increase our listenership, I think. It's not actually on the air in Denver where I am, but uh, the podcast is here. We're actually getting some good hits on the podcast these days. Good, good news. Um, well, we ended last hour talking about all kinds of cool stuff about retail investors and why they're buying things. And most of the time, they don't know why they're buying things except that they see that the thing is there and so they buy it. Now, a lot of people have other reasons that they're using, but the study that we were looking at is saying that just having your your company name mentioned with some kind of a surprise causes people to buy it, which is it's what we've been seeing, so it's nice to have it backed up with the evidence and the lots of numbers to see it out there. Um so we there's a bunch of stuff to talk about this hour. We've got what's going on with the job openings and the high unemployment. So we've got like nine and a half million job openings and we've got nine and a half million people unemployed. So what's the deal? Why don't we just hire them? It's the half people. Just the half people. Yeah, we did. I need to put an ad out for half people. That That's well, probably why we're... Links. Yeah. It's, it's hobbits. It's probably why they're having trouble filling those positions. That's hobbits are hard to find. Shrinking. Has something to do with the shrinking population. Oh, I see what you did with the shrinking. Ah. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's economics jokes. Yes. Uh, those of you not laughing, I don't know why you're listening to this program. We are. That's that is a microcosm of who we are. All right. So nine and a half million job openings. Nine and a half million unemployed. Well, there have been lots of theories on this. And at the beginning, a lot of those theories were actually right when there were a lot more unemployed and a lot fewer job openings, like childcare and, um, uh, you know, t two worker families where who's going to take care of the child and, uh, and oh, we've moved. Well, this, this week, we've got some new data that's come out. So more than 9 million Americans said in May they wanted jobs and couldn't find them. Companies said they had more than 9 million jobs open that weren't filled. This is a record high across any way you want to look at it. So this is the issue, and this it's called a mismatch. And economics is full of mismatches. It's anytime you have a supply-demand issue that's out of whack, 
If you have a supply chain issue that isn't supplying properly, you have a mismatch. This is a mismatch. Um, and there's a lot of really cool data that's come out with this mismatch. So ZipRecruiter, which is a, a job-seeking site, found that 70% of people that are looking for jobs who last worked in leisure and hospitality, so hotels, restaurants, basically the people that got pummeled the hardest in the pandemic, say they're now looking for work in a different industry. Well, that's a surprise. Not at all. Because if you were working in that industry and you say, hey, people are always going to want to come to a hotel or they're always going to want to eat at a restaurant and you got laid off and or fired for a year, it's really hard to come back to that and say, oh, that's a stable place for employment. So they're looking for a different industry, which is fine. In addition, 55% of the job like applicants want to work remotely. 55, that's more than half for those of you who have trouble with that extra 5% on the 55%. More than half of the applicants to the job market right now want to work remotely. That's going to slow down the hiring process because it's really hard to hire someone and never have them be physically with the people that are training them. We're figuring it out. It's happening. But this is part of the mismatch. Uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas found that 30.9% of people don't want to return to their old jobs. And last July, that's one year ago, this is the depths of the pandemic, it was just below 20% that said, I don't want to go back to my old job. Now it's above 30%. That's a significant difference because if they lost their job, they've been out of work for a year and they're looking back and saying, I don't want to go back into that, whatever that was, that was so unstable that put me out of work for a year. So it's the typical mismatch. And it's easy to fall back on this and say, oh, this is easy to understand. What it means is most of the people that are looking for work need to retrain if they're going to a different industry. And they may have to move, which is Part of the reason why a large percentage, a majority of these job seekers want to work remotely because it's a lot less expensive to do remote work in another state while you're training to be in a new industry than to go back to school and move at the same time. But there's a lot of that happening. The people moving from one state to another for jobs has gone way up. So what we're seeing here is a temporary situation, a retooling of our workforce and it's, it may leave an unemployment gap where people cannot fill a job in a given industry for quite some time. There's now a stigma, not of embarrassment, but of, whoa, I don't want to go there and lose my job in going to work in, in a lot of retail, in a lot of hospitality, of you know, that's the first thing that gets shut down. And, and, and if we get another big wave and the Delta variant is a big wave. And this is the last piece here. This is purely theory and maybe even hypothesis, but ba backed up with a lot of data that I'm seeing from other places. And that is that the age of these people in leisure and hospitality that are the most unemployed is also the age of people that is the least vaccinated. So Think about that for a minute. These are the people that will be most impacted by another shutdown. If they're afraid of the Delta variant, These are. this is a place that there, there's still a great deal of weakness in, in our existing economy. We are not at recovery yet. Recovery is going to look different than what we had before, no matter what comes out of this.
we're going to have a different economic system than when we started it. We already do, but it's not going to ever go back to what it was. And There's something that's that's important to recognize that's going on in the economy still. COVID's not over with. We may think it's over with here in Central Texas or wherever you're listening from, but there's right now an average of, according to The Economist, 337 deaths a day. They got that from, I think, from the CDC. Where is that? Is that in the United States? In the United States, we're still 337 people today. And the other other day I was looking at the Texas number and 49 people have died in Texas in a given day from COVID. Now, I don't have a lot of statistical data on it. I do have some anecdotal data from people who work in hospitals, and they say it's mostly younger people that are dying now. And And that statistic, if it it continues... That statistic, if it continues, that's as high as the traffic mortality rate in Texas. It's higher. It's higher. It's actually the the historic average death from gunshots, car crashes, and complications from the flu in the United States averages 306 people a day. COVID is killing 337 a day. And again, it's it's an irony because almost everybody who's dying from COVID is somebody who refused to get vaccinated. Yeah. I'm not, I think it's sardony to use the proper term rather than irony. Irony is at least humorous, and sardony is like it'd be humorous if it wasn't so sad. Well, yeah, I guess we could use sardony, but it sounds a little bit twisted. Yeah, when people use the word sardony, everybody has to go look in their thesaurus, and I think that went extinct with the dinosaurs, so they have to find it online. Yeah. Anyway, sardony. Kind of like, kind of like my greater trochanter. Your what? My greater trochanter. You call it my dinosaur. You have a greater trochanter. You have two? I have two of them. Oh, my goodness. This you sounds serious. You know that bump on the side of your hip where your leg attaches to your hip? Yeah. That's the greater trochanter. Oh, no. Am I going to have to have a procedure? Well, I'm sure some kind of procedure is necessary for you to walk, but it's the dinosaur as far as I'm concerned. As far anyway, as, yeah. Yeah, anyway. Sar- sardony and thesaurus go together. Yes. You could be sardonic very easily. So, anyway, what we're saying there is that there's a major mismatch in who's looking for jobs, where they're looking for jobs, and who's giving jobs. But the end result of it is positive. Uh, It's going to take a while to remain positive. We're going to have to go from lots of people looking for jobs and lots of people looking to fill jobs to actually filling them. And if we look back at any point in history, retooling can take years. It can take multiple years. So looking ahead a year for retooling, uh, by retooling, I mean relearning to go to a new industry, just just expect that to happen. There's some big mismatches going on out there. In the Wall Street Journal, there was the article about that. I talked about it last week. There are towns, and Austin is one of them, that have lots of openings for low-paying work, working in bars and restaurants and so on, and they're unable to fill them. But the people who get paid that amount of money and generally generally speaking can't find any place affordable to live and many of them have moved out of the areas where the jobs are. Right, exactly. And that's true in Austin, Denver, uh, Portland, uh, all of the big growth cities, San Francisco, Manhattan, the prices of real estate have gone up tremendously during this and so pandemic. Have rents. And so have rents. Which means that if you're getting paid to bartend, and you're, run, you're living off of tips. You can't afford to live in the same apartment that you could live in two years ago, which means you have to live farther away, which makes it more expensive to get in no matter what. The, the public transport 
that maybe you were relying on, you maybe have to go out beyond the realm of public transport to get into the city. So this is part of the whole, I'm not going back to that same industry concept of how do I make a living? There's another example, a really direct one. The big catering firms that were helping out at the tech companies, um, Google, Facebook, we should say Alphabet rather than Google, Facebook, Apple, uh, Microsoft, they have this, these different ways of doing it beyond public transport where they're, where they're busing people in from way outside of an area to come in and cater because they couldn't afford to live in the area that they're catering to, the workers. And those systems got put on hold because they weren't originally designed to carry caterers. They were designed to carry tech workers who lived a long ways out. Well, those tech workers are now working remotely. So that transport stopped. And now catering is opening back up and catering companies are losing contracts because they can't get workers on site to do the catering at the big tech campus because they can't afford to drive in and park. Parking in these cities, if you look at the daily rate, is sometimes as much as an apartment rent. It's, there, there, are, there are expletive words that could go in front of expensive here. Uh, just to be in a place where you're required to work. So there's imbalances across the board. And we've got to be aware that as the system changes, you can't really do a remote catering job. It's really hard to get on Zoom and be like, yeah, I'm cooking up the fries right now. Here you go in your kitchen over there. We, we have a call from Alan, or not a call. We had a message from Alan. He wanted to know if we'll ever have phone calls again. Well, we'll have a very simple answer to that um we're on a phone call right now yeah but will we ever be able to call in from outside and the answer is kind of simple too yeah what's the simple answer going back into the studio at this point in order to get this the calls in which is the only way we could do it no it's not we've got technology to do it we just have to have somebody on staff to select to accept the calls in the weekend so we could do that um we've been debating with ourselves internally whether we should a lot of people have said that they like having email questions because we don't get interrupted with like what what time is the sports team gonna play the other sports team in the middle of our radio program and we go i'm not sure what sport it is that you're talking about then then we go on so uh i don't know when would you, would you like to have call-ins again i think it might be useful um but it would involve somebody answering the phone, right? Um, directing the call. We have another option: is during the week you could uh, we could record your your question. We could have a service set up to say, "Hey, this is a question for the radio," and we could answer it at the time. Um, this would be a really good one if if you are committed enough to the radio program to answer this in email form. Would you like us to have phone calls again? Would you like us to have? The ability for people to call up and ask us questions or give us information or even better, tell us how freaking wrong we are. Because there have been times when we've been caught dead on being wrong. And obviously we're not the first ones to admit it because somebody had to point it out to us because that would make them the first ones to admit it. But we do like to admit when we're wrong. We want to make sure that the information that gets out there is the right stuff. So let us know. I mean, email could do that too, but... People tend to complain better. Speaking about complaining vocally, it looks like we're going to have another record high earnings season come in. The second quarter earnings are starting to come in. 
and we've had a couple of banks already come in well above expectations. The question is, what's the market going to do with it? Because our record high earnings are already priced into the market, and the answer right. is probably not much at this point. I don't think we're going to see any major market moves unless we get something really strange happen, on the upside at any rate. Yeah. The downside is always there. The market is fairly priced at this point. That's an important thing to recognize. If you look at standard standard measurements of price-to-earnings ratio, it's running about 22. If you look at the way we look at it, it's running about 20, which is pretty normal in a bull market. It runs along about 20, the price-to-earnings ratio of about 20. Now, that sounds like a lot, but it really means that the earnings, the profits of the company represent 5% of the value of the market. So the earnings yield on the S&P 500 right now is about 5%, which is pretty darn good. In other words, you and, and there's a theory uh, Ed Yardini came out with the theory, I think he originated it, that as long as the earnings yield is higher than the treasury yield, the market is undervalued. Yeah, and what does that mean? That's necessarily true. Yeah, what does that mean? A treasury, I mean, it's he's basing this on the idea if you have a choice to put money in a safe place or put money in a place that's riskier, well, then you should be paid extra money for the riskier, at least on average, for well, the riskier place, which makes sense. That the, he says that the risk of a 10-year treasury is exactly the same as a stock market. Long-term, well-diversified. Yeah. 10 yeah. years. If you buy a 10-year treasury right now and interest rates go up, you could see a – you could eat. And I've seen situations where this actually happened, where five years from now, you you're you put $10,000 in a 10-year treasury. It's only worth about $7,000. You can see a 30% loss in a 10-year treasury if you sold it before maturity. Right. If you hold it to 10 years, you get your money back. If you include dividends, the S&P 500 since World War II just doesn't have a 10-year period where, without counting inflation, you didn't get your money back. Right. So the risk of the S&P 500 and the risk, the long-term, the 10-year treasury are identical. Therefore, their yields should be identical. And if the S&P 500 is paying, not they don't actually pay you in dividends, thank God. And it's in earnings. But they have, but they have earnings that they are, much of which is being reinvested in the companies most of which is being reinvested in the companies, which is a good sign. If their if their yield, their earnings yield is five percent, in other words, a P price to earnings ratio of twenty, the S and P the the Treasury ten year earnings yield, not earnings yield, but regular yield on the ten year Treasury would have to get to five percent before the market doesn't look attractive. What 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 does it look like today? Well, the one point about rough one point three percent on the Treasury and about five percent earnings yield. Now, even in dividend yield, by the way. The S and P five hundred dividend is one point three three percent right now. So, in what, words, if you own an S and P five hundred stock index and it had zero expenses in it, which it doesn't, but let's say it did, you would receive one point three three percent dividend if you took dividends in cash rather than reinvested them. You would receive one point three three percent a year just for owning the S and P five hundred. So, what we're saying here, according to this metric, is that the stock market is still underpriced. Yeah massively underpriced which is well it's either massively or slightly underpriced depending on who you listen to yeah and when we look at it we've had a very incredibly smooth rise from the down in at, at the beginning of the pandemic very smooth well, we're up almost 100 percent. we're like 90 plus percent up in the s p 500 from the bottom and we haven't had a correction during that period so even though we look at the overall market, overall economy, and say we are massively into recovery, things look glowingly good, 
It would not surprise either of us in the slightest to see a correction in the near future. A 10% drop is just, it's a small percentage of the gains that we've gotten recently. So don't be surprised to see that. That's normal in the market. And it's not one of those predictable aspects of we'll have a correction on May 3rd or something like that. It happens when people decide to do the selling, when they get scared. And they get scared when things go well for a long time. And that's what we're seeing. There can be unexpected events. For example, let's just say China started looking like it was going to invade Taiwan, which it's promised to do over and over again. And we looked like we were going to sail in there and do something. I'll assure you we would have a market correction. Yeah. Um, the, Even the, though over the long term it'd be good for business, I hate to say that war is always good for business. But uh, Iran, let's just say Iran decided to start sinking ships that sail through the straits there next to it, Straits of Hormuz. That would cause a market correction. There's so many things that can cause a market correction. Anything unexpected that's negative that comes up. Yeah. Try blocking the, the Straits of, uh, try blocking the Suez Canal again or the Panama Canal. All of those things could have tremendously scary impacts on a short term. But the long term, it's going to get cleared out. So that's what we're saying kind of across the board. Any minor trigger when things are going as well as they are can cause a correction. So just be aware that it's out there. It's, it's not only possible, it's historically quite likely to happen, even though we look at the glowing picture out into the future that's not how humans work. We tend to have corrections in the middle of it. We, we don't work well on averages because to get to the average, you have to have the ups and the downs. There. Did that make sense? I don't it know. Make sense. That's yet, terrifying. Economists is, making sense? This can't be. Something I can, I can confidently say that everything will not go perfectly smoothly. Everything will not be roses going forward. Something will come along that will spook the market at some point. We'll get a 10% correction. Yeah. That's just the trick is to be prepared for it. It's and it recognize that it's going to happen. Not be scared of it when it comes. No, it's just naturally part of being invested in the market over the long term. And part of the reason uh, why we haven't had one recently in the middle of all of this is that as as the market has dropped, there's just this tremendous amount of cash sitting on the sidelines still, which means it drops and people jump in and buy. Well, at some point it's going to drop farther. It may be more sustained. That's going to, that, when I say maybe, it will happen at some point just based on human history, unless some huge events happen that cause us not to be trading at all, we're going to have more corrections. And that's, just be aware of that. And we're going to have more bear markets. I wouldn't be surprised if we get down to a full bear in the middle of this, 20% down. That wouldn't surprise me because there's no great reason for it to happen. Except that when people get scared, they tend to get scared all at the same time. And that presents another buying opportunity for those of you who are willing to be out there for extra, extra long period. Just be well diversified. If you're buying individual stocks, you should probably understand what you're doing. Uh, if you're buying diversified, also understand what you're doing. But there's quite a bit less long-term risk being well diversified across a great swath of the economy means the only reason why your portfolio goes to zero would be if the whole economy did, and then it really wouldn't matter what your investments looked like anyway if the whole economy was at zero. How's that for weird? Makes sense to me. The other thing is, on the positive side, I said this earlier, but the pandemic is still going on around the world, and it is 
raging in places other than the United States. Japan has shut its economy down in many ways. It's in a lockdown in Japan right now. Britain is thinking about going back into lockdown. This eventually will go away. Israel, the, the, forever. the most vaccinated country on the planet, has gone back to near lockdown mode. Though that may be more political than health-oriented. The point is that the pandemic is still ongoing, and, and it's still going to have negative economic effects around the world, including in the United States. Eventually, this will go away, and we'll get a, we'll get a bounce back from that. There's a lot of good things coming. A lot of bad things are going to go away. Eventually, I can also promise you that the Fed will start to raise interest rates. They will, eventually, they'll first start to taper off their buying of mortgage bonds and treasuries, which they've been doing a lot of, $120 billion a day, was it? Yeah, that's what it was. And they've tapered off quite a bit. We see from their June meeting that they're already beginning the tapering. Uh but they're going to continue to buy less and less and less as they see the market supporting itself. And then eventually they're going to raise interest rates. Now, right now, even the suggestion that that could happen in 12 months by the Federal Reserve causes the market to drop, which is very comfortable for us. It means that we're less likely to have a major correction Im imminently. Why? Because people are still scared enough to sell at the rumor of a rumor. It takes people to be a little bit more hardcore in their fearlessness for us to get a real jolt of fear to cause a major selling event. And I realize that we're just talking about, if you're a parent, you can understand this a little bit better. If you're used to looking at your child and they have a little bit of a tantrum, you know the ones that you can quickly adjust. You can just step in very quickly and easily. And you also know the full meltdown ones. And they can have the same cause. It can be exactly the same event. It has a lot to do with where that child is mentally at that moment. And the market is the same way. It is an amalgam of a lot of adult children that are making trades. Um, and anybody that thinks you're not an adult child, well, I don't know how you couldn't be. That's what we all are. I think we could back that up with some kind of statistic, couldn't we? I'm an adult roughly child. You say something? Oh, that's weird. What is weird? I think I think it's. Uh, I think I can comfortably say we all have parents, or did at some point. We're a parent. Yes, apparently so. Oh dear, here we go again. I want to talk about something else. Okay. Something I talked about last week, but I think it's worth saying again. Go for it. You really need to pay attention to your beneficiary designations on your IRAs, your annuities, your life insurance, and so on. They're not what you think they are. That's something I took a continuing education class on this week and was rather impressed with how little I knew. Actually, I knew most of what they were presenting, but they presented some really unusual things. Simply, and this is stuff I already knew, if you have an IRA and you pass it to your spouse at death, you need to be careful how you do that, by the way, particularly if your spouse is younger than you are. But in some it needs to be passed in many cases as a beneficiary IRA rather than as rolled into the spouse's IRA if they're under 59 and a half. But generally, generally speaking, passing it to the spouse is a pretty safe, no-brainer type of thing. Easy peasy. Passing it, on, passing it on to somebody other than your spouse or when the spouse dies passing it on means that it has to be liquidated within 10 years. And there's a lot of confusion about that. People have not grasped yet what's happening there. That means they have 10 years to liquidate it meaning that you can wait 10 years and liquidate it all at once. You can liquidate it in the first year. You can liquidate it through the years. But here's the thing, again, that I think a lot of people don't understand. 
receiving a lot of money in a given year results in you're paying higher taxes on that money. So spreading it out over a 10 year period makes a lot of sense. But again, I don't, I don't guess this too much, but people who are really smart and who have advanced degrees don't understand the tax system. Getting a lot of money out we of could an just, IRA all you could just, is expensive. Yeah, you could just say that people don't understand the tax system, period. I don't, there's nobody that does. And it's important to talk, and, and we had somebody a while back that we've had several people talk about the expense of setting up a will and a trust with an attorney, setting up a proper estate plan. It is, it, it sounds very simple until once you see it and say, well, it doesn't sound very simple even after you read the thing. But it's important to recognize that everybody is different. And I've actually talked to people who are advanced age, like I am. I say advanced in their 70s. You, you've reached wills. a high level. You're, you're leveling up. Yeah, I've been leveling up a long time. And they don't have wills. They don't have wills. They don't have an estate plan, which means the state gets to determine where your money goes. No estate, the state gets to plan. And if you don't know what the state has planned for you, you might be surprised to find out how it works. It's important to have an estate plan, not for you. You'll be dead and you won't know about it and you won't care about it. It's important for the people you leave money to or leave property to. And it's important to recognize another thing about that estate plan. It needs to be simple. It needs to be something with very low maintenance. And that's something you always want to ask about. Because as you get older, particularly maintaining a complex estate plan with lots of living trusts and things like that in it, you practically, it's well as no practical. You have to have a professional do it. Yeah. You have to have an attorney on retainer or you have to pay a retainer, a retainer, an attorney return. <laughs> and a returny tainer. A returny tainer. Or, or how about a attorney retainer? Attorney teen, a, teen raider. Seems like if there's an A attorney, there ought to be a B attorney too, but that's beside the point. Anyway, you want to keep it simple as you can keep it in Texas as a good probate system to do that. But it's, it's very, very important to have plans for what happens if you become disabled. What happens if you become no longer able to make, you had a stroke or you're in a car accident, you're no, no longer able to make financial decisions. How is it going to work out? And it's important to discuss this with whoever it is that you have set up to take care of it. With whomever. Whomever. See what I did whomever. there? I just put an M whomever. in your word. You just corrected me. Thank you very much. That's good. Jake is actually the chief compliance officer in our business, and uh, he's his business is to correct me. Yes. He does a very good job. Uh, and, and market corrections are not me, though. That's right. The point is that having a good estate plan involves not only having the documents and having them looked at or look at them and read them, but thinking through what's going to happen and talking to the person who's going to make it happen. And as, as, you, as you proceed through life, it's important to recognize that's going to change. As people get older and people no longer are capable of taking care of themselves or taking care of your affairs, it's important to figure out how to do it. And there's a real strong tendency to, to procrastinate. And that gets really awkward when you do because then the, if you don't have an estate plan and you have minor children, or if you, have, if you don't have an estate plan and you have somebody who is going to need to be taken care of, the court gets involved and it gets sort of interesting at that point and it gets expensive. So right. it's really good to talk to a professional. We, by the way, don't give legal advice, but we will look at a state plan. Yeah, we'll all of our advice is illegal. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. <laughs> the point is that we'll look at it and say, you need to see an attorney about this and tell you some of the things you might want to talk to the attorney about. But it's important to have a good, good estate plan. It's important because, believe it or not, we're all going to die. 
You know, I said that to a Rotary Club once I was speaking to, and one guy said, I'm not going to die. And I said, why? And he said, because we all have a certain number of things to do in this life before we die, and my to-do list keeps getting longer and longer, so I'm never going to die. By the way, he was he was dead within a couple of years, which I thought was sort of ironic. He's never met a guy named Murphy, obviously. Murphy tends to step in at weird moments, and I like a subset of Murphy, the subset being that which you plan for doesn't happen. So if we plan really well for your death, maybe we are hitting immortality. Actually, he challenged worse. You don't ever want to challenge worse. Never say things couldn't get any worse. Never, never, never. Yeah, if you yeah. want to join the conversation, we have email addresses waiting. Jeff at tpwc.com or Jake, or preferably both, at tpwc.com. Jake at tpwc.com. Jeff at tpwc.com. And we will be answering those as as they come in. We've only got about uh, 15 minutes left in the program after the break. So if you have a question, it's a good time for it. We will be back on the other side of these very important announcements. And we're back with more of the Personal Wealth Coach with Jake and... Jeff McClure. Yep. We are the bald duo, bearded. His beard is more white than mine, and that's how you can tell our voices apart as we speak to you. I mentioned that J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon claimed the U.S. consumer was just getting started. I think he's got a lot. I think he's got a lot going for him there. I think he he is the head of the largest bank in the United States. has a better sense on what people are spending money on than does the University of Michigan. One of the things that caused, supposedly caused the market to drop one percent this week was a survey done by the University of Michigan as to the consumer sentiment. The funny thing is, I shouldn't say the funny thing is, the consistent thing over time about consumer sentiment surveys is consumers may say they're not going to spend money, they may say something on, in surveys, but they very commonly turn around and do the opposite. So I don't put a lot of faith in consumer sentiment surveys, although the market apparently did this week. Um, I think seeing Jamie Dimon be able to see what's going on with all those credit cards uh, probably has a better feel for what's going on. Um Consumer spending rose at an annualized rate of 7.2% in June. Now, two-thirds of the United States economy is consumer spending. 7.2% annualized rate just in June. Moody's is saying that uh, we're looking at probably an 8-point-something percent GDP rate for the second quarter when it comes out. And I say that's an annualized rate, too. So we're looking at something like record growth in GDP. Not record, but it's taking us back to 1982. And as we were coming out of the 1982 recession during the Reagan administration, we had a burst of growth following that recession. And it looks like we're going to get it again this time around. Um, Industrial production rose at 4.8% rate, annualized rate. Now, why 4.8% is that that's that's certainly an excellent rate and certainly healthy. But it would have been about 6%, except for the chip shortage is slowing down auto production. Which, just as a quick uh, side note, more good news, that's expected to alleviate from almost all sources by the end of the quarter. Uh, the yeah, production it'll take a while to get through the supply chain. Correct. So don't expect your used car prices to drop just because the, the chips are here at the end of the quarter. Because they still have to get built into cars and production has to be there. So we may have six more months of high used car prices and and high new car prices. But at some point, we're going to overbuild 
and that's probably 18 months out. Uh, but expect, expect used car prices to start dropping at that point. Which brings us back to lumber. Yes. Lumber prices rose dramatically for a while. Now they've fallen back pretty much to normal across the board, which just shows you how the ha, supply I and demand issues I see what you did there. Happen. I see what you did there across the board with the lumber. Oh, my goodness. It's amazing. Lumber prices have fallen. Across the board. Right. Yeah. So that's the way things work. And you are listening to the Personal Wealth Coach. We are not only a radio program. We're also an SEC registered investment advisor that works with higher net worth people to manage their wealth and give them fiduciary advice and manage their portfolios. And if you'd like to contact us off the air, we have a local number at 254-947-1111. Or, or if you if you want to call it on landline and you're outside the local area, you can call. 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. Should you have a landline still? Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com. You can listen to our radio programs going back lots of years. You can see links to our podcasts. You can sign up for our newsletter. We have a, a weekly newsletter that comes out every Friday. And it's good. And it's good. Uh, or you can send us an email or contact form at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach. <laughs>